Welcome back to the Fit for Golf podcast. In this episode, I am extremely happy to be joined by Alan Aragon. Alan is truly one of the most respected figures in the world of evidence-based nutrition. And what this means is that it is nutrition backed up by scientific research, as opposed to opinion, which we are subject to so much in today's world, whether it is talking amongst friends, colleagues, or reading about things online. Alan has a wide-ranging background. One of the most notable things that he has done is that he is the lead author for the International Society of Sports Nutrition, Position Stand on Diets and Body Composition. So Alan has a wealth of experience in research and also maintains a private practice helping athletes and the general population in the real world. Just before we get started, a reminder that Fit for Golf has its own app. Golfers of all ages and all standards are making huge strides in their golf performance, fitness and health. There are programs to suit everyone and there is an abundance of material to suit people working out at home or in the gym. Visit fitforgolf.blog forward slash app to find out more. You can get 20% off a 12-month subscription with the code FFGPOD. I am very happy to be joined by Mr. Alan Aragon today. Alan, how are you doing, sir? I'm great, Mike. Thank you so much for having me. It is truly a pleasure to be here. Uh, You're very welcome. I am really happy to have you on the show. Just as I spoke to you about before we started recording, I've been following you now for definitely over 10 years. You're always one of my go-to resources for anything nutrition related. I've been typing whatever search term I'm interested in, followed by Alan Aragon into Google for a very long time. So uh, it's good. It's good to get to talk to you and hopefully educate the listeners a little bit. I know you have a very long and illustrious background in nutrition and exercise science. Would you mind giving us a little bit of that background in your education and work in nutrition and exercise science, please? Sure, man. Well, first of all, there's been 31 years as of well this coming january it'll be 31 years that i've been in the field i started in 1992 so it's been a real long career with not a single dull moment on and trust me on that there's not a single dull moment (laughs) um so the the my career is basically three components so three decades so the first decade is strictly uh, personal training, um, in-person personal training. And then the second decade is a mix of nutritional counseling and online personal training. And then the third decade is the research and education phase with, um, a minor portion being keeping a foot in the trenches, working with clients. And so the research and education aspect is what's going on right now in this final phase where I am just, uh, pumping out a bunch of um, peer-reviewed stuff. <clears throat> the work that my colleagues and I have done over the past 10 years or so has built a lot of the foundation for the practice guidelines for uh, strength, and di- strength and conditioning coaches, dietitians, um, personal trainers, nutrition coaches. And so uh, it's I, I'm pretty happy about that, having had that kind of uh, influence on the industry. So 
that's that's basically in a nutshell where I've been and where I'm at. Yeah, and I've been very thankful for a lot of those papers they've made through, you know, a lot of the ones that you've done have been, you know, reviews or meta-analysis type things where you're pooling, you know, huge amounts of different studies and data going through them and providing practitioners like me with just really usable info, which is which is really, really helpful. Cool. I'm glad that you found them helpful. Yeah, no, for sure. So the vast majority of listeners to this podcast are already interested in training and nutrition. Many of them are active and nutrition con- and nutrition conscious, but fit into the very common profile of wanting to shed some body fat while maintaining or even gaining muscle mass. Can you talk us through what needs to be understood for this goal? Yeah, the, the big thing is that everybody is starting from a different place in terms of both training status as well as body composition or, you know, degree of um, body fat and lean mass. So some people are very far from their potential for muscle gains and some people are a combination of being very far from their muscle gain potential with having a lot of body fat. And so it's the latter group who are basically newbies or deconditioned folks with excess body fat who have the greatest margin or greatest potential to put on muscle and lose body fat. And so um, the more advanced guys and some of the higher intermediate guys have to be a little more careful in how they tactically approach the goal of muscle gain and or fat loss because there's uh, nuances there and issues regarding preserving muscle while losing fat and also not gaining too much fat while putting on muscle and different protocols apply to uh, different people along that spectrum. So it's it's, it's complicated, my man. <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. So I think the most um, kind of common goal of the people listening here would be middle-aged people who are definitely more interested in losing excess fat Mm-hmm. and hopefully preserving as much muscle mass as they do so, as opposed to people who are interested in gaining lots of muscle. Mm-hmm. Would you mind digging a little bit into the specifics yeah. of basically what needs to happen for this to occur? Because mm-hmm. I know that this is something that has so much mis- misinformation being shared about it. It can be really hard for people who don't have, or maybe even do have an education in it to understand. Yes. So the very simple recipe that would serve this particular population and this goal best is consume enough protein and consume adequate total calories. So um, if fat loss is the concentration, then you would need to consume adequate protein while not overeating calories or, or even you know, attempting to maintain a caloric deficit while maintaining adequate protein. So caloric deficit, adequate protein, put those together, and then you add resistance training to it. And then you've got, you've got the magic that will develop from that. So um, adequate protein, sufficient protein, optimal protein, that really is covered by a target of approximately double the RDA. In other words, double 0.8 grams per kilogram, in other words, 1.6 grams per kilogram 
of body weight, which imperially is 0.7 grams per pound of body weight. Um, the best way to target protein intake is to base it on goal body weight. I mean, in an ideal world, we would base protein on lean body mass, but then there's problems and assumptions built in with thinking that you can accurately estimate body composition. You can't always. So um, a more pragmatic and simple yet still effective way to do it is to base protein needs on target body weight. So, so imagine what you want to weigh or just base it on current body weight if you're already what you want to weigh and uh, multiply that in pounds by 0.7 and that's your protein target. Um, as far as total calories go, you generally, if, if you want to lose fat, generally speaking, you want to target less total daily or total weekly calories at least than you're currently consuming. And the deficit you impose can either be subtle or it can be aggressive. Um, a subtle deficit would be something along the lines of 10, 20% less calories than you currently take in. So roughly 250 to maybe 500 calories as a deficit that you would um, subtract from your current maintenance intake. Um, people who are significantly overweight or obese can can go a little bit more aggressive than the 10 to 20% benchmark, but the 10 to 20% deficit is pretty safe while maintaining adequate protein and then just being consistent with your training. And then over time, you'll reach your goals. And ha having a realistic picture of what progress is, is really important as well. Some people think that they can lose like 10, 15 pounds a month or a pound a day even. And it's like, no, no, no. It's more like one to two pounds a week if if you're lucky. And keeping in mind that a pound a week in six months, you're down like what, 24 pounds. So um, that's that's significant. And, and so, yeah, that maintain a realistic target for progress. Keep the protein sufficient or even optimize at that 1.6 grams per kilogram of target body weight benchmark and uh, maintain that subtle deficit 10 to 20%. And um, that that's sort of like the safe recipe for success. Yeah, that's fantastic. I think a lot of people get caught up in maybe the mindset or, or information that fat loss can be achieved by removing or massively reducing the amounts of certain food groups. Can you just really make it clear for people why energy or calorie balance is the most important factor in this equation? Yeah, I think that is best illustrated with just a little anecdote from my uh, personal practice, from my, my private practice with clients. There is a huge contingent of people who have come to me for weight loss help who either have done carbohydrate restriction and avoidance, like keto, keto and keto type programs, or they're currently on keto and they can't lose weight and they can't figure out what's going on. And the common thread amongst these folks is their unawareness that you need to impose a net caloric deficit by the end of the day or the end of the week in order to lose weight. And 
that's the that's the big thing that's tough for some people to wrap their heads around, especially if they've been continually indoctrinated with the idea that there are special foods or uh, special dietary regimes that that will get the fat loss. No, the the special dietary regime is the one that enables you to consume less calories than you burn by the end of the week. That's the special regime. Um, there's no particular macronutrient breakdown that is going to be special for fat loss, aside from the one that has sufficient total daily protein and um, adequate calories. And of course, with the calories dovetailing into an energy deficit by the end of the week. And this can be done with high carb, low fat diets. It can be done with low carb, high fat diets, and it can be done with anything in between. And while that uh, wide range of effective variation might be a bit climactic for a anticlimactic for a lot of people, uh, the silver lining there is that, well, yeah, it, it actually is climactic for some people, but um, the unexcitingness of that wide range of variation of effective diets, um, the silver lining is that we can individualize programs to people's personal preferences, tolerances, and their goals. So that the diet that you choose to lose body fat and maintain or even gain muscle mass in the process should be the, the diet that you prefer or even enjoy in order for you to stick to the diet in the long term. Because anybody can torture themselves for a few weeks or even a few months at a time. But there's going to come a point where people just stop and give up because they can't stand it. And so just remember what the basic tenets are, caloric deficit, sufficient protein, consistent training, and that will lead to fat loss with the preservation of lean body mass. That's really good. That's that's very helpful for people. I think one of the things that people run into the problem of is that they try one of the popular diet, diets of the moment, like carbohydrate restriction or maybe intermittent fasting. They see some weight loss and they credit it to the diet or the diet type, forgetting that the reason they lost fat mass is because that diet strategy enabled a calorie deficit for them. Yes, yes, absolutely. And there's a lot of misinformation out there being pumped out by various um, individuals with, with very large audiences. I mean, you'll hear people say, yeah, calories are bull crap and calories don't matter. But what you need to do is just not eat calories for long periods of time. <laughs> it's like, all right, all right, bro. <laughs> You're not making sense, but go off, you know? So um, the intermittent fasting thing is a, is, is a huge, uh, well, it's actually been quite a huge buzz for a number of years. And, and the interest in intermittent fasting amongst the mainstream is so high that the research community has taken a high degree of interest in it as well. And there's a lot of publications that are just rapidly being pumped out on intermittent fasting, its benefits, its effects, um, comparative studies of intermittent fasting models versus daily caloric restriction. There's a ton of them now. And what we consistently see is under matched hypocaloric conditions, 
intermittent fasting models and daily caloric restriction perform basically equivalently in terms of weight loss and fat loss. Um, there, uh, the only difference is there's a couple of differences that are recurrent. One of them is that certain intermittent fasting models are more prone to the loss of lean body mass than others. So the alternate day fasting, for example, um, that has been shown to tend to uh, enable the loss of lean body mass compared to linear caloric restriction for one reason or another. Um, another trend that's in actually in favor of intermittent fasting is a variant called time-restricted feeding, where um, that actually in a couple of studies has shown greater fat mass loss than the hypocaloric control condition. While both, while both uh, uh, comparators maintain lean body mass. So that's been pretty interesting. Uh, but overall, fast intermittent fasting models and daily caloric restriction models have equivalent effects in terms of improvements in body composition. So what that tells us once again is that hallelujah, there is a multitude of approaches that work relatively similarly. And this is a boon for people who want to individualize programs. If you would rather do an intermittent fasting model that enables you to eat less calories by the end of the week or the end of the day, great, you do that. If you would rather have a more linear model, a more traditional daily caloric restriction type model, and great, do that. Um, one of the distinct advantages of intermittent fasting models like time-restricted feeding or alternate day fasting or the 5-2 method, which is two days of fasting, is that the energy deficit tends to occur with unrestricted eating on the feeding days. So there's not enough overcompensation on those feeding days after the fasting days for you to nullify a net caloric deficit by the end of the week. So that's, that's one of the cool things about those intermittent fasting models is that you're not necessarily tracking and quantifying during the feeding days. You're eating ad libitum or relatively unrestrictedly. And then the fasting days um, dovetail you into a caloric deficit by the end of the week, regardless of micromanaging or lack of micromanaging of caloric intake. So that is kind of a cool thing about intermittent fasting. Yeah, really good. So there's once you have the kind of two main criteria in line, the protein and calorie ranges, you have essentially endless options to mm -hmm. fill in the rest of your diet with preference, some variety, and basically what you prefer. Yes. Um, are there any differences in age and sex that we need to consider? Or do the same mm -hmm. principles apply directly? Um, as far as the gender differences with the with respect to these models, no, not that we know of, not that we've been able to detect. Uh, age, well, yes, I would say that intermittent fasting models have an inherent compromise in terms of uh, muscle protein synthesis and muscle remodeling and anti-catabolism at the muscle level. 
So all of the variants from alternate day fasting to 5-2 to time-restricted feeding, uh, each one of those models has a tendency to uh, sub-optimize muscle protein synthesis or net gains in muscle protein. So in the elderly, that could be a problem. So for example, with the, the popular early time-restricted feeding model where you eat from 8 o'clock to 8 a.m. to roughly 3 or 4 p.m. That's being studied in the literature quite a bit. Um, and that's shown favorable impacts on blood glucose control in overweight and obese subjects and pre-diabetic subjects. Okay, that's, that's great and that's fine. But um, a couple things. First of all, those clinical benefits actually disappear in lean subjects. So when you test fasting models on lean subjects, you see more lean mass loss and you see an absence of um, clinical therapeutic benefits like improved glucose control and imp improved insulin sensitivity. Those kind of get washed out when you impose fasting models on lean subjects. So uh, back to the elderly, the threat of age-related muscle anabolic resistance is always there as people creep above uh, 40 and certainly above 50 and above 60. And the threat of sarcopenia and dynapenia becomes more and more intense. And so with models such as time-restricted feeding and early time-restricted restric feeding in particular, um, that creates the opportunity cost of not consuming protein um, pre-bed or pre-sleep or, or in the evening. And in the elderly population, it benefits them to take uh, advantage of every opportunity that they can to make sure they're consuming adequate total daily protein. And the pre-bed feeding of protein would be an important component that would aid in um, anti-catabolism, muscle remodeling, recovery, and optimizing resistance training adaptations. And so when you neglect that, then uh, that is a lost opportunity, uh, particularly for the elderly and particularly for people who are either gunning to maximize muscle retention or growth regardless of age. So yeah, that's the slightly yeah. complex yeah, that, story with that. That's brilliant. The uh, anabolic resistance risk with aging, is that more to do, more to do with biological aging or the condition that the person is in. So if you've had someone who has been resistance training and is in mm -hmm. very good shape in their 50s or 60s or 70s, is that very different to someone who hasn't been you know, looking after their health as much? Or is that risk always going to be there just with age? It's one of those things. Mm -hmm. That is such a good question. And the surprising answer is that biological age, and especially in terms of training status, and training conditioning, muscle conditioning, muscle quality, muscle function, there can be a huge disconnect between biological age and chronological age with respect to the organism as a whole and, and particularly the musculoskeletal system. Mm. And so um, just, just a personal anecdote, I turned 50 in January and I'm stronger now at 50 than I was at 25. 
So that is inevitably going to have going to impact muscle in terms of uh, physiological aspects, architectural aspects, and how those relate to age norms. So my muscle mass and muscle strength is is more like a 30-ish year old than it is a 50-year-old. And so by the time I'm old and truly old and rickety, <laughs> I am hoping to um, be biologically youthful. And in the research, we're seeing that this is indeed possible. And it is a function of use versus disuse. So you can take a young person and immobilize them and keep them bedridden. And you'll see identical effects in terms of muscle anabolic resistance um, and Im impairment of muscle protein synthesis and these various processes that lead to muscle wasting that are very similar to what happens in the elderly. And so it, it is a matter of a combination of things, of disuse that would cause this sort of age-related muscle anabolic resistance and uh, a function of undernutrition, particularly in the protein and amino acid department. So uh, you can take a, an 80-year-old person who is untrained and you can literally wake their muscle up and enable them to gain muscular size and strength just through regular and progressive training. There, there's no age cutoff point where this phenomenon doesn't happen. So that, that's the good news for that part. Yeah, so very important message for people listening who maybe are a little bit older and haven't been training. It's definitely not too late to make some progress and maybe turn around some of the negative effects that they've been seeing. Yes, that's exactly right. Um, the points you brought up there strike me as very similar to what people think happens maybe with their metabolism as they age. You hear people saying, oh, at X age, your metabolism starts to slow down, just wait and see, or, you know, my metabolism is much slower than it used to be. And I can remember reading a review paper that came out recently, and the kind of general gist of it was that, well, really what might be the bigger problem is that we lose muscle mass due to less activity. Mm -hmm. So we have muscle is what burns a lot of our calories. We have less of that. And we're doing less strenuous activity. That's the reason why the metabolism has changed so much, as opposed to you've grown a year older. Yes, yes, it's not an uh, uh, the the in quote slowing of metabolism is not an automatic function of the passage of time or the increase in age. It absolutely is not. And uh, painting a, a, a little bit bigger picture here. When we talk about metabolism or my metabolism is, is, has slowed down, that sort of thing. So there's two main components to what we call metabolism. So that, I mean, technically metabolism is the sum total of physiological processes that keep the organism alive. But when we talk about metabolism in this context, we're, we're talking about 24 hour energy expenditure. Okay. So there's two main components of 24 hour energy expenditure. And that is your resting energy expenditure and your active energy expenditure. So resting energy expenditure, um, that usually is the largest component of energy uh, expenditure for most people. And we also call that resting metabolic rate or basal metabolic rate. But um, in any case, uh, resting energy expenditure 
is highly influenced by um, lean body mass. So if you lose substantial lean body mass through disuse and through poor nutrition, then yes, your, your resting metabolic rate over time will go down as you progressively lose lean mass. Now, um, here's the interesting thing though. There are people who do maintain their exercise routines and their, their lean mass to a certain degree, and they still claim to have a slower metabolism. And they mistakenly blame that on the resting energy expenditure side of 24-hour energy expenditure, when in fact, it is due to a drop in active energy expenditure. So the two big components, resting energy expenditure, active energy expenditure of this 24-hour energy expenditure, the active energy expenditure component can be subdivided further into two things, exercise activity and non-exercise activity. So the so-called non-exercise activity thermogenesis or the NEAT component of energy expenditure is something that's hard to track. And it's usually something that's pretty subconscious, just the amount of non-exercise movement that we have in the day, which can include occupational movement, recreational movement, fidgeting, the amount of walking and fretting and <laughs> that, that people tend to do habitually and subconsciously. Um, this varies quite a bit across individuals. And over time, as people you know, move from college age to, you know, re, re, in quotes, real adult age and then middle age, their non-exercise activity insidiously creeps down. So the major sedentary shift that occurs when um, adults enter the, the full-time workforce, their non-exercise activity can go down substantially, especially at a desk job all day. And then you go home and unwind and get in front of the TV all night watch Breaking Bad, uh, eat Doritos, eat Doritos every night <laughs> while watching Breaking Bad. Um, that will lead to subconscious um, and substantial downshifts in non-exercise activity. So what people often mistake for their metabolism slowing down, what actually happens is that their non-exercise activity energy expenditure insidiously creeps down over time. And so as long as people recognize that and they know that that's the tendency of adults and working professionals and parents uh, and <laughs> parent figures, then they can combat that by either keeping an eye on it or knowing that they need to keep their exercise volume in check and sufficient in order to um, offset those negative changes. Yeah, so it's really lifestyle shifts rather than the passage of time is the big thing to be considering for that specific uh, context. Absolutely, yes. That's brilliant. Alan, there's one thing I'd like to go back on in terms of the energy balance or calorie balance. A phrase often thrown around is that a calorie is not a calorie or 500 calories of donuts isn't the same as 500 calories of fresh fish. How can we wrap our head around calorie balance being essential to weight loss or weight mm -hmm. gain versus not all calories being equal? Got it. So here's, here's the deal. <laughs> a calorie is always a calorie if we're talking about units of, of uh, measure of energy. However, 
the different nutrient. Uh, however, a nutrient is not a nutrient. Okay, a calorie is a calorie, but a macronutrient is not a macronutrient in terms of the way these different macronutrients um, provide calories for the body and also how the body handles these macronutrients and transforms their their caloric content. So um, you can't get around the energy balance equation. You can't get around calories, but it helps to be aware that there is some pretty wide variation in how foods influence thermogenesis or in how foods influence um, the energy balance equation. And so we can look at nutrients influence, differentially influencing um, calorie balance. And we can also look at how foods do it. And so looking at nutrients first, protein is the most calorically expensive macronutrient for the body to process. So the body requires a relatively high proportion of energy to metabolize, assimilate, use protein. Um, it requires a lesser amount of energy to metabolize carbohydrate and even a lesser amount of energy to metabolize dietary fat. And this is um, conveniently in relation to the body's capacity to store these fuels. So there is a very limited uh, storage pool in the body for, um, for circulating protein and amino acids, actually. Uh, even though we have a large store of muscle mass, um, the flux of protein input and um, storage in muscle mass, I mean, it's very small on, on a daily basis. So going up larger, um, the body has a larger um, storage and use capacity for carbohydrate within the glycogen stores of the body. And then going up to the largest storage depot is body fat. So with that very large storage depot, and with there being much fewer chemical steps to convert dietary fat to body fat, then the body has the easiest time converting um, incoming fat from food to body fat. And that's just the, the long and the short of it. Third, um, the thermic effect of protein is largest. And then second in line is carbohydrate. And third in line is fat. And there is just... Um, pretty unshakable data and consistent data showing that that's just the reality of, of the macronutrients. Um, so yes, there's they, still calories involved with that, but it's understood that the macronutrients provide and transform calories very, very differently. And so if we're to pan back a little bit and look at foods, so protein rich foods not only are they going to be the most energetically expensive for the body to process, but they're also the most satiating. In other words, they are the most filling and the most hunger staving of all the, all the food types. So protein rich foods, and then carbohydrate and fat are, you know, debatably, um, you know, better one better than the other as far as satiating capacity goes. Uh, dietary fats tend to have a sort of a longer term satiating capacity than than carbohydrate foods, even though 
in the short term, carbohydrate uh, seems to be more satiating than, than fat. But protein is more satiating than any of those. So if somebody consumes a low protein diet, they are compromising not only thermogenesis, but satiety. And so, but, but still calories are still part of this equation. It's just that the macronutrients influence the caloric equate or energy balance differently. And so, um, if we were to look at the classic example, when somebody says, if a calorie is a calorie, then, um, why is it so different if I eat a piece of lean meat versus uh, a donut of equivalent caloric um, content. Well, because macronutritionally, they're very different. And protein is much more inefficient in terms of storage capability in the body and much more calories are burned to process it than the fat and carbohydrate in that donut you're going to eat. And so, um, yeah, it can be a complicated thing to think about, but, um, energy balance. Uh, Oh, I want to mention this too. There is a false notion being propagated that it's all about hormones and it's not about calories. That is a false dichotomy. And that's because you can't separate the effects of hormones from um, caloric balance. It's impossible to. And that's because different states of energy balance influence the appetite regulating hormones differently. So if you were to under eat, then your hunger hormones will ramp up. If you were to overeat, then that brings down your hunger hormones and increases your satiety hormones. And so there's always going to be that that sliding scale and that seesaw effect. It, it cannot be avoided. And so um, there's another odd thing going on with misinformation about um, nutrition and dieting and effects on body composition and body weight. And that's the whole idea of insulin being some sort of a master regulator of, of fat mass. And that's a load of baloney also. Uh, insulin is, is an algorithm in the background and it takes a backseat to what's going on with, um, calorie balance and insulin is often called the, uh, you know, the, the fat storage hormone, but that's oversimplifying things because you could take two diets and one of them be much more insulinogenic and, or, or even two foods, you can even t- like take two foods, like certain protein foods, like whey protein, for example, is some of the most insulinogenic stuff in, in the known universe. Yet there is a, a blinding consistency of positive effects of whey protein on uh, body composition and even, in, even on fat loss. And so insulin is basically looking at the wrong thing. If you're talking about fat loss, uh, the best way that, that I can explain the whole insulin thing is you hear a lot of people who are carbophobic and anti-carb say that we need to avoid carbs because they elicit an insulin response. And insulin being the fat storage hormone makes carbs fattening. So that's kind of the, the false chain of logic here. While that sounds fine and logical on paper, 
we have to put it to the test experimentally and under objective conditions. And that's been done many, many, many times where isocaloric or calorie matched diet comparisons with far different proportions of fat and carbohydrate are compared in controlled conditions. And there's no difference in fat loss. Um, when you run those caloric comparisons over a period of weeks or a period of months. And if it was true that insulin was the driver of fat gain, then we would not only see less fat loss in the higher carb um, conditions, but we'd see more fat gain in overfeeding comparisons where the caloric surplus is based on carbohydrate. Hmm. We just simply don't see that in overfeeding comparisons that pit fat overfeeding versus carb over overfeeding. We don't see greater fat gain with the carb overfeeding. If anything, we see it with the fat overfeeding. And so um, this brings us down to the question of, okay, so then what the heck is, is getting people fat? You know, what, why are carbs blamed for getting people fat? Well, it's almost a guilt by association thing. It's because carb context and quality really matters and really comes into play in the overeating equation. And um, really what, what gets the blame objectively are ultra processed, highly refined, highly engineered combination foods and snacks that are roughly a 50-50 mix of refined carbohydrate and, and fat, all balled up and packaged up into energy dense, hyper palatable commercial units that are easy to passively over consume. And so that, that is really the issue. It, it, it's food quality is the issue. Food selection is the issue because um, you're never going to see somebody uh, getting fat from eating, uh, from having a problem of, of just, man, my problem is I eat too much apples. I eat too much fresh fruit. You know, I got too much fresh fruit lying around for snacking. I just eat too much of it. That's almost never, ever the case. What the case is are hyper palatable, ultra processed Oreos, snack foods. Oh yeah, <laughs> chips, Oreos. Yeah. You know, um, the, it's those types of foods that um, are the problem. It's not carbohydrates per se. It's hyper palatable combo foods that are ultra processed. No, that's brilliant. Um, before I forget, I'd like to quickly go back to what you were talking about the thermogenic effect of protein or how we essentially end up with less net calories after we've processed the uh, protein we've taken in. Do you have like an estimate or do, do we know an estimate of just how different it is in terms yeah, of yeah. how much is mm -hmm. used up in protein versus carbohydrate versus fat? Because yeah. I think that's important for people. They're not like, Oh, I can eat as much protein as I want because I get so little, you know, is it a little bit different or a lot different? Like some numbers would be sure. helpful there, I think. Sure. Yeah, that is a good conversation to have. So for every 100 calories of, of protein that you consume, it costs you or, or it takes the body about 30 calories to process every 100 calories of protein that you ingest from the diet. So if we were to take like a, a hypothetical amount of a hypothetical food, that's just protein and you consume hundred calories of it, your body is going to spend about 30 calories to process, to metabolize it. 
Now, with 100 calories of carbohydrate, it may take six to eight calories that the body burns to process it. Now, with 100 calories of fat, it may take the body one to three calories <laughs> to process that 100 calories of fat. So the differences are rather significant in the, in the macronutrients as yeah, far as energetic cost of processing. And so um, we have to add on to that with protein. Not only is it more energetically expensive to metabolize by the body, but it's much more satiating and it's much more filling and it controls hunger much better. And so this is why... Uh, there has been a series of experiments that looked at the effects in free living conditions of just stacking four to 800 calories of protein on top of a pre-existing um, habitual diet in resistance trainees uh, who are already habitually taking in high protein amounts like two, two to 2.2 grams per kilogram, about a gram, a gram per pound of body weight and you stack an extra, you know, an extra hundred grams of protein uh, on top of that hundred, 150, sometimes 200 grams of protein on top of that, that extra protein over a period of weeks, eight weeks, 12 weeks, 10 weeks, even more. Um, there's even a six month study showing um, the addition of an extra 150 to 100 grams of protein to a pre-existent high protein intake, those protein calories seem to disappear. In other words, they don't seem to add to the net energy intake and storage uh, of the subjects who are assigned that extra protein intake. Um, and that's because not only is protein more thermogenic, but it's more satiating. So increasing protein in the diet tends to drive down the intake of, of the other macronutrients. And yeah, it, it is an interesting phenomenon with protein. That's why it's so difficult to gain body fat by just simply stacking extra protein onto the diet. Now it is possible to do it, but it's difficult and, and, and highly inefficient to do it just because of the satiating and thermogenic properties of protein. Now you can lock people in a metabolic ward like Bray and colleagues did and escalate protein intakes and watch people put on fat mass alongside a lean mass. But in free living conditions in athletic and or recreationally athletic subjects, trying to impose a caloric surplus by just adding more protein to the diet is difficult to actually manifest. Yeah, <clears throat> definitely. That touches on the second follow-up question I had when you were talking about the different thermogenic effects of food. You mentioned mm -hmm. that we have different capacities to store each macronutrient. So yeah. I guess what I was wondering is if we have different uh, abilities to store the different macronutrients, what happens them when they're taken in excess? So like you said, the protein calories <laughs> seem to disappear or don't show yeah. up in excess body fat. So mm -hmm. what's happening with excess protein when it's consumed versus carbohydrate versus sure. fat. Okay. That that's another great question. And it'll help clear up some of these concepts that I just threw out <laughs> earlier that might just be floating abstractions until this point. So good, good. Um, excess protein. 
the body you you doesn't it essentially doesn't have a storage pool for um, ingested protein. You can only gain muscle protein in very small amounts within the course of the day. And so if you were to take in a huge protein bolus, then um, only a, min a minority of it will go towards muscle protein synthesis. Like maybe like maybe 10% of it at, at, at best will go to muscle protein synthesis. The rest of it will go, will, will get oxidized for, to fulfill energy needs of non-muscle um, requirements of the body, uh, including immune function, um, a large percentage, possibly 30 to 50% of that excess protein will get taken up by the, by the gut actually, and, uh, by the gut and the visceral tissues. And then the rest of it, like I said, will get oxidized. Well, not wasted, but just used, um, as heat energy mm. for, for energetic demands of activity and metabolism. Uh, now minimal store. So minimal storage of, of excess protein in the body with carbohydrate, you've got for the average adult, you have uh 500 ish grams of storage so you have like a pound, sometimes a pound and a half of, of uh, carbohydrate storage in the intramuscular space, also the liver as glycogen. So glycogen is a stored form of carbohydrate where adults have somewhere between four, six to even 700 grams of storage for, for carbohydrate. So as you can imagine, if you are, if you deplete glycogen, it would be very tough to uh, max out that glycogen storage with a, a single carbohydrate feeding, trying to eat like, you know, four to 700 grams of carbohydrates. <laughs> it's going to take some effort. Um, and so, so yeah, you've got glycogen storage for carbohydrate that is relatively substantial. Uh, and for the dietary fat, 50 to a hundred thousand calories of, of storage or more for, for fat calories. So it's basically a unlimited storage for dietary fat. And so this is the, the so-called oxidative hierarchy, um, of, uh, of fuel handling or, or fuel storage there excess protein, much more of it is going to be oxidized than excess carbohydrate, much more of which is going to end up oxidized compared to excess dietary fat. Only because the storage depots for each are just escalating, almost exponentially larger than the, than the other. That's brilliant. Alan, I'm just going to ask you one more question. I don't want to keep you too long. Um, like something that I really kind of enjoy in your book is you talked a lot about basically how people need to be coached or need to find a way that they can adhere to the nutrition strategy they've mm -hmm. decided to follow. Mm -hmm. So for people who want to improve their body composition, do you think it's necessary for them to track their calories and macros? 
are, are there more simple ways that can still yield, you know, very positive results? I know you have a lot of experience in this. Yeah. Yeah. I think that in order for people to adhere best, they have to go with what they have a natural tendency or a natural proclivity or, or wiring towards doing. Some people are just naturally more quantitative types, naturally more micromanagey types. Um, I'm talking about the people who actually enjoy using an app to punch in their their intake, their grams, their calories. And I think that those people will do very, very well with um, with being very granular and micromanagey and quantitative with with their intake. Now, if you know yourself to be somebody who doesn't even like the idea of that, then you can investigate more qualitative and looser methods of tracking. So if we look at the continuum of precision in, in, in tracking and accounting for intake, you have people punching in every gram into an app and weighing everything <laughs> on one end. And then on the other end, you have people who have the idea, the notion that they need to eat less than they burn by the end of the week in order to lose fat, but they sure as hell don't want to micromanage and weigh and, and track every gram. Um, somewhere in the middle can, can strike a compromise for folks, um, which is having an awareness of um, your, your protein needs for the day. And what, what does that look like in terms of uh, eyeballing serving amounts, portion amounts? And what sometimes needs to, what sometimes is required to get to that point is spending two to four weeks with the tracking hmm. in order to gain an awareness of the nutrient and calorie values of the portions and types of foods that you prefer. And then once you have an awareness of that, then you can graduate to eyeballing it and having an awareness of total protein intake. And you can still track calories if you want. Just you can be very loose about total energy and uh, not, not loose about total energy, but loose about the proportion of total energy that's carbohydrate and fat, but just be pretty consistent with the protein intake. And so that's kind of a compromise, like tracking protein and total calories that's a compromise between those two extremes. And um, for, for most people, it's best to graduate away from obsessing over tracking and just having an awareness of what constitutes a balance of the right food selection um, that amounts to your targeted nutrition for the day. That's kind of the ultimate level to get that is having a ballpark awareness of that where you don't have to obsess over all of the small details. And there is a whole art and science to creating what, what a balanced diet is. And that's covering the range of the food groups and achieving a certain amount of servings per food group. Um, and that, that is a whole other conversation. Yeah, no, that's fantastic. I think that's very helpful for people. Uh, just to wrap up then, Alan, um, can you tell us a little bit about your latest book, Flexible Dieting, which I just finished and thoroughly enjoyed? 
where people can find it and maybe where else they can learn more from you. I know you've got a, a workout you need to catch, so I don't want to hold you. <laughs> Thanks, man. Thank you. My book, Flexible Dieting, is mistitled because it really should be titled Evidence-Based Nutrition, but that's not very catchy. So flexible dieting will work. Uh, it's basically everything you need to know about nutrition for improving body composition and athletic performance. It's a big tome. I'm very surprised that you had the nerve and the endurance to get through the 352 pages and 500, what was it? 559, 569 references. And uh, it's a monster. Uh, I'm, I'm very proud of it. It's the result of uh, 30 plus years of, of field work and 10 plus years in the research world. And um, I, I would encourage anybody who's on the fence about what nutrition book to get, just get flexible diet. Just get it. <laughs> Read the reviews, man. It's like, I've never heard such good reviews for any book in any genre, which I'm very happy about that. And I don't yep. take it for granted. And And so... You can find it on anywhere books are sold from Amazon to Walmart to Target. Uh, but you can just go to my website to to get uh, a direct line to it. So that would be alanaragon.com. And uh, that's where you can find uh, all of my, my, my stuff, including my research review, which is a monthly thing that basically started uh, the all the other monthly research reviews in the space. So I pioneered that as well. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm a dinosaur in the in the space, Mike. <laughs> no, not at all. It's really good stuff. Like it's interesting you said, you know, you're surprised that, you know, I put in the time to get through your book. And the way I'd look at that is I'd prefer to put in the time to read your one book than needing to read seven other books and maybe not getting the same level of education from it, you know. Um there's a cup there's a couple of books in like the golf world that listeners will resonate with that are like not the easiest books in the world to get through, but when you do, it's like, oh, so I can stop reading all these blog posts and, you know, all these tidbits on social media. There's one by Adam Young called The Practice Manual and one by Mark Brody called Every Shot Counts. And it basically teaches you about the statistics behind golf performance and then the best ways to learn, like motor learning for golf. And it's like, well, if you know the two of those, you're, you know, a lot of the way there in terms of raw information you need. And that's kind of similar to how I felt with, with your book. So I'm more than happy to, to promote it. And I'll, I'll uh, continue to do so on Twitter. I'm happy to hear that, man. Thank you so much. Yeah, Alan, that was my pleasure. I'm looking forward to releasing this and you might notice a couple of Twitter notifications of people asking you questions and hopefully oh, giving praise. Good, man. I'll be on top of it. I, I really appreciate the time. And uh, really appreciate the great questions, Mike, and keep doing a great job at what you do. Thank you very much, Alan. I appreciate it. Goodbye. You got it. <laughs>